You're listening to the Dublin Review podcast in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. I'm Angela Flannery. In this episode of the Dublin Review podcast, I'm talking to Sarah Baum about her essay, The Viewings, which appeared in number 88, the autumn 2022 issue of the Review. Sarah Baum is a writer and visual artist who lives in West Cork. She has published three novels and a work of non-fiction entitled Handiwork. Her most recent book, Seven Steeples, was published by Tramp Press in April 2022. Sarah has been contributing to the Dublin Review since 2014. Sarah, thank you for joining me on the Dublin Review podcast. Hi, Angela. Thanks for having me. And the piece that you're going to read for us today, The Viewings, it appears in the autumn 2022 issue of the magazine. Um, Can you give me a little bit of background to it? Yeah, it's uh, the period of time it covers is pre-pandemic, sort of into the pandemic. So it kind of um, it starts around 2019 uh, and then goes into uh, 2020. I think that was the last viewing. And it's about a period of time in which and I mean, this is kind of explained in the essay um, in which I thought we were able to afford property and we went to view a number of properties and um, and I sort of obsessed about it as well. So. Um, so there was a lot of stuff that went on in my head that got left out of the essay and a lot of things that I looked at online that just would have been overwhelming. But um, but what's included in the essay is, I suppose, the kind of most um, most strange or, or interesting places we went to see. And what interested me more than anything was um, was the kind of overlap between the kind of places that um, that we thought we could afford or could afford at the time and then subsequently couldn't afford. <laughs> and your situation is your you were born in Lancashire, but you grew up in Cork. You studied in Dublin and then you moved back down to rural Cork. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my birth in the UK was very, um, it's its its overstated. <laughs> As in, I only spent about four months there um, when I was a baby. So I have no recollection of living there at all. I feel like I completely um, grew up in rural Cork and rural sort of East Cork. And then I lived in Dublin for a number of years when I was studying in that. And then in 2011, my partner and I moved down. He's from Dublin. And uh, to we lived in East Cork, actually, for a while, um, not far from my parents. And now we live in West Cork. So it, that's sort of I, the period of time that, it, that the essay is concerned with. It's sort of moving to West Cork and finding this kind of beautiful, idyllic place full of a wonderful artistic community and <laughs> dreaming of putting down roots there, but actually not that the reality is a bit more grubby around the edges. Hmm. Did you always imagine that you would live in the countryside? I mean, I've read your um, obviously your work in the review, but also your your novels. And for me, as one of your readers, uh, I cannot imagine you living in a city. No, I cannot imagine me living in a city either. <laughs> I am. Um, I did like for a period in my 20s, I think, as everyone, as, as most people who well, as many people who grow up in quiet rural places know, um, and you yourself as well, I'm sure, there's this kind of urge to escape when you're a young adult, um, when you're a teenager and then a young adult. So I was very, very happy living in Dublin for years, but um, for about seven years I lived there and in various different spots around the city. Um, but I, I, it seems almost like a dream to me now. Like when I walk around Dublin, I feel sort of lost, you know, and I think it's changed a lot in the years since I've moved. Um, but also, I guess I just don't feel at home in cities. I never have. Um, as some people sort of grow up and then never grow back down again. But I, 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 I sort of went through this period of, um, what do the Amish call it? The, you know, when they sort of go out and live their lives and then they 
go back to the Amish community and do very quiet traditional things. <laughs> you brought Mark, your partner, with you and he was a city boy. Yeah, yeah, he uh, he always had the same longing for the sea, I think. He always would have done a lot of fishing. Um, he grew up over in Glasnevin, um, kind of on the edge of kind of Glasnevin, Finglas, and he would have done a lot of cycling as a, as a boy to get to the sea. He would have cycled all the way to, to Hoth as a teenager to go fishing. Um, and so it was always kind of this, the sea was sort of this magical place, you know, this, um, this kind of special place. And I think we both retained that. There's something about, like neither of us grew up by the sea, but we were both brought to the sea as a special occasion, you know, as a treat when we were kids. And that kind of left a mark on us. I mean, I think everyone loves going to the sea, but um, but when it's made a sort of a special thing, then you hang on to that. Um, and we're both kind of obsessed with this idea of staying close to the sea wherever we live. Um, but of course, you know, this is what a lot of people want, ideally. Um, and what we suffer with a lot here is, and what the entire Irish coast um, is afflicted by as holiday homes, people who have second homes and use them only occasionally. So that's something that comes up in this essay um, and comes up in quite a lot of the stuff I've written lately. Actually, you can see why perhaps it would be a rub in the present situation. Yeah. Yeah. The holiday home, um, the blight of the holiday home does come up in this. But I suppose that, you know, you can't blame people for wanting holiday homes in these areas. But what's interesting about the way that you write about rural West Cork and living on the coast is that for writers, especially this sort of ideal of having a bolt hole that you go to to write in, the reality of being there in the isolation and the seasons and all of that. No wonder houses end up empty. But for you, it really does feel like this is where you belong. Like you're totally comfortable with the reality of living in um, a landscape that isn't always hospitable, that isn't convenient. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. I hate the summers um, in West Cork. The summers never bothered me so much when I lived, I suppose, not in a coastal. I mean, I did live by the coast for about five years before that, but it was less of a, well, I guess it was a bit of a holiday resort in a way. No, ever since I've lived by the coast, I've hated summer because you're kind of quiet places that you think are yours alone and are kind of special. <laughs> are invaded with people. And I mean, it's, it's a terrible attitude to have because when I lived in the city um, and away from the coast, I was one of those people who went to visit the seaside um, on sunny summer days. But um, no, you get an awfully sort of um, ferocious sense of ownership over these quiet places <laughs> that you think. It. West Cork's kind of unique in that because, you know, on a lot of the Irish coast, well, not a lot, but in a good bit of it, you have long, long sandy beaches. You know, you know this from Waterford. Um, and that's kind of different. You know, there's kind of space for everyone on a long sandy beach. But West Cork is very like you just have these very little short kind of um, stony, rocky little strands that um, fill up quickly. You know, um, when when there are people who are, who, you know, who are looking for them and people are way more adventurous than they used to be since they stuck up the Wild Atlantic Way signs everywhere. Um, but I mean, all this makes me sound very mean. I really do have no more entitlement to this place than any other <laughs> person <laughs> I just have have a sense of entitlement about it and I guess that's what the essay is exploring you know um it's not it's a kind of a it's an unfounded bitterness you know it's not fair that I'm so bitter about not being able to afford a place here you know I've made certain choices in my life um 
for example, not to have a day job, you know. Um, I feel very lucky not to have a day job, but the price I pay for that is no particular financial security, you know. Um, but what I have mm -hmm. instead is time. So um, I don't know how much of that really, you know, the essay was supposed to be lighthearted as well. Um, so I didn't go into any of those sort of deep feelings, but I think there are a lot of things that sort of grumble under the surface that hope, hopefully people will identify with. I think they will. Well, will you read uh, the viewings for us? And we'll talk a little bit more about it afterwards. The viewings. One. Something stung me in the water. I couldn't see anything, but there was a prickling sensation on the thin skin of the inside of my left wrist. It was August. I was swimming at the spot we call Horse Island. The island itself is very small and about a mile out from a pebbly strand. I would breaststroke towards it for as long as I could bear the cold, then turn around and backstroke to shore again, looking up at the islet I was not able to reach. Mark always remains on the shore when I swim. He scans the horizon. We call this his seal watch. At least one will always pop its head up above the surface as soon as we arrive at the shore. We've heard stories of swimmers who have been nipped, nudged. I did not feel the prickling again until I was standing on the pebbles, rubbing my limbs with a time-worn beach towel. There was a stippling of pink dots, like a nettle sting. I looked back along the line I had swum. The water had resealed. There was nothing to see, not even weed. I think I just got stung by a jellyfish, I said, though in truth it must have been only a stray tentacle, lithe as a hair, invisible. For a few days the pink dots faintly itched. Then they disappeared back into my wrist, and afterwards I would tell people, proudly, that I had been stung by jellyfish, as if this was something that happened all the time, as if I was a person habituated to the hostilities of the coastal environment and, by extension, worthy of living in a beautiful place. In the weeks that followed that August sting, a dangerous species of jellyfish washed up all over the strands of the southwest coast. Mark called them the Japanese men of war, Portuguese men of war. I corrected him repeatedly, but it never seemed to stick. Two. Later the same month, or maybe in early September, we were sitting on the sofa in the evening. One of the cushions was in my lap, and my laptop was balanced on top of it. The little dog was between us, the big dog at our feet, and I was reading aloud to Mark the description on daft of a property for sale. The house was on an island. There were 21 photographs, and almost half were not of the property itself, but of the surrounding scenery. The bay, a mountain range, sheep, heathery slopes, exposed rock. The house, mid-20th century, two storeys, three bedrooms, was a cheese-like shade of yellow, with a brown rim of paint around the bottom, as if it had been dipped in mud. There was a concrete path to the front door and a steel arch between gateposts that supported a climbing plant. In the good front room, there were sepia family portraits and frames on the walls, trophies on the mantelpiece. In the kitchen, an oven mitt was tucked into the handle of the cooker and there were two tin dog dishes, prophetically, on the black and white tiles. In all three bedrooms, there were mildewed floral curtains and holy pictures positioned squarely above the bedsteads. Our Lady, Our Lady grasping the Infant Christ, Infant Christ grown up and grasping his own redly glowing heart. The asking price, 
was a hundred thousand euro. I opened a new tab on my screen and we went searching for the house in Google Street View. It was sunny on the day the Google people went to photograph the island. A day in April, a decade earlier, according to the timestamp. There were leaves on the trees and pink roses on the plant climbing over the steel arch. The lawn was neatly mowed. In the doorway, an old man could be seen stooping to pick up two Hessian grocery bags. His back was to the camera, and so there was no need to blur his face. In the next frame, the front door was still open. A shaft of sunlight touched the welcome mat. The old man and his bags were gone. This was during a period of time, less than a year, when I was infatuated with the idea of owning property. There was no compelling reason. Perhaps it was just filling a gap between other infatuations. I had been a keen bird watcher for a spell. Then I started to obsessively swim in the sea. For a couple of years, Mark and I had rented an old farmhouse in West Cork, and we both liked it tremendously, the characterful rooms, the beautiful location. The rent was reasonable, the landlord fair. I was not remotely unhappy with the way things were. What I wanted was essentially a perfect replica of my situation, minus the worry about where we would live in the future. We had not applied for a mortgage because we are lazy about filling out forms, but also because we assumed it would be futile. Mark is already in his forties, and I am not far behind. We do not have any regular or reliable sources of income. Sometimes he does casual jobs, and sometimes I acquire large sums of money out of the blue. On 364 days of last year, I made nothing, I would have to explain to the mortgage advisor. And then on this one day here, I made 20 grand. I had managed to save enough to buy the cheapest kind of property without a mortgage. And perhaps this is why I was infatuated with the idea of doing so. I would check daft most days. My default location was West Cork. My default max price was 100k. My default property type was any property. If it threw up something good, I would phone the estate agent and schedule a viewing. A few days after we had seen the notice for the house on the island, we drove our van onto the deck of a ferry. It was autumn, a day of erratic weather, racing clouds, dull spells, showers, sun. There were trawlers coming and going and berthed. After the ferry docked, Mark accelerated up the slip, then parked on the quay and waited while I went to use the public toilet. While he waited, a man in a red van pulled up beside him and asked if he had come to see the horse. No, Mark said, that must be somebody else. We found our way to the house, recognising the sheep, the heathery slopes, the exposed limestone and the sea views from the photographs on Daft as we drove. We passed a few clusters of holiday cottages and a deserted caravan park. We were met at the house by the red van, Fuck it, Mark said. I thought he said horse. I was so sure he said horse. The man from the estate agency did not seem to mind. He looked after the houses for sale on the island for the boss man on the mainland, he said. He unlocked the front door and told us to pull it behind us after we were finished looking around. He would lock it again later when he was passing. The interior was pokier than we expected. Whoever took the photographs must have been climbing onto chairs crouching in corners. The ceilings were low, the light gloomy. It smelled like a charity shop. The timber-panelled hall was brittle with woodworm. 
In the kitchen, the tin dishes were still waiting for dogs. The oven mitt saluted us. A second bathroom had been installed adjacent to the kitchen. Wide handles were fixed into the wall, and inside the shower cubicle, there was a plastic chair. What would have been the sitting room had been repurposed as a downstairs bedroom. There was a single bed, still dressed, with the covers kicked back as though someone had just risen. On the windowsill, there was an empty bottle of whiskey, leaning against the wall beside the bed, a pair of crutches. At the top of the narrow staircase, we found an extra story that had not been photographed. A stepladder led up to the attic, which seemed inexplicably large. There was no light switch, but in the spirit of adventure, I climbed the stepladder, guided by the torch on my phone. If we were in a horror movie, I shouted down to Mark, this would be the bit where something gets me. But nothing got me. The attic was just stuffed with ambiguous junk and mouse shit, shadows, spider webs. At the back, there was roughly a hectare of garden. It was covered with hummocks of topsoil that had been dumped and then devoured by undergrowth, gorse, ragwort, giant hogweed. There were a few trees marking the perimeter, but nothing dense enough to stop the little dog escaping if he were to put his mind to it. We walked back through the house and pulled the door after us and paused for a moment at the front gate beneath the rose arch. I remembered the old man on Google Street View and realised that we had just travelled back in time through his twilight years, the decline of his well-kept garden and of his health. Can you honestly picture us starting a new life here? I asked Mark. Not exactly, he said, though I can definitely picture us growing decrepit and dying here. The ferry back was quieter, the sky clearer. The colours of the trawlers were bold blues, reds, greens, and the bay was brimming with dangerous jellyfish. The slipstream of the ferry sent them into a spin. The dogs snored in their van beds. The mist lifted on the mountain range. Three. That autumn we started watching a series of grand designs about a self-build experiment in Oxfordshire. The basic premise was that people would buy a plot of land in a row of plots in the countryside, with utilities already installed. Then they designed and built their own, unique house. In the end, they would each have a tailor-made property in the heart of a rural community of like-minded people. In the end, they would, altogether, be different. We had missed the first episode, but the second episode centred on a young couple, Shannon and James, who broke up shortly after the project began. Shannon left James, but James decided to go ahead with the self-build anyway, in the hope that it would lure Shannon back to him. He admitted this to Kevin MacLeod, on camera. I think if I can build this house, and if I can do it well, he said, and then dramatically hesitated, I think she will realise that we should be together. His house design was for a barn-like structure. By the end of the episode, it was unfinished. James had run out of money, but was living in it anyway. He had hens on the lawn, but no staircase, no hot water, no toilet door. Shannon had not returned. Back in the bit of the programme that was filled in advance of the start of the self-build project, the young couple had disparaged the house where they were then living, in an estate of new bills in a suburb of Coventry. It was red brick, semi-detached, hemmed in by identical houses. It did not reflect their personality, James said. 
that year, I watched a lot of programmes about construction projects and domestic makeovers, and what strikes me, I would say to Mark in my know-all voice, is that people usually have zilch personality at the start of the episode and spend a lot of time constructing it for the benefit of the cameras. 4. In October, my brother-in-law sent me an email with no message, just a link to a private ad that he had seen on Dundeal. The ad seemed to be describing a substantial property for sale in the countryside, not far from where we lived. I can't remember the exact asking price, but it was somewhere in the ballpark of 60k for a couple of acres and a variety of structures. From the photographs, there appeared to be a significant central shed, and then several smaller sheds, each with a skinny chimney sticking up like a periscope. It would make a good garden centre, the ad said. It was being sold as a commercial property. Then there was a phone number, and at the very bottom. Note, this property is currently operating as a dwelling place for religious women. I googled it, and found a newspaper article dating from a few months earlier, relating to a mother, Irene. A case had recently been brought before the local district court, and it had been determined that the structures she had erected on the property were unauthorised. To avoid prosecution, she had been directed to dismantle the settlement and sell the land as swiftly as possible. Mother Irene, as it turned out, had a lengthy history of attempting to found hermitages. On the internet, I found a short video of the other member of Mother Irene's order, a 20-year-old woman from New Zealand, taking her first vows as Sister Anne-Marie in a ceremony in the makeshift chapel. Sister Anne-Marie is wearing a garland of red plastic roses around her head and smiling with all of her front teeth showing. She is round-faced with big glasses. Not a single strand of hair has escaped her wimple. For three years I promised obedience, chastity and poverty, she says in a wobbly voice. Mother Irene is standing beside her. She finally has a disciple and is obviously delighted. This is something I have dreamed about for 30 years, she says. I read somewhere that the sisters lived in silence, except for a single hour of every day. I phoned the number in the Dundeal ad to schedule a viewing, but assumed that Mother Irene wouldn't answer unless my call happened to have coincided with her allotted hour of speech. Perhaps I was lucky, or perhaps she was making allowances. But we set a date for 3.30 on Friday, and she gave me directions from the village to the hermitage. Are we really interested in buying this? Mark said. Or are you just being nosy about the nuns? We were in the van, driving away from the coast, past lakes and thin bands of forest where the beeves were changing and dropping. Who, me, nosy, I said. We came upon a long, high timber fence and a concealed driveway marked by a life-size statue of Our Lady on a platform in a flowerbed of withered undergrowth. She was completely white, white face, white robes, white outstretched arms, this is probably it, I say. On one side of the statue, there was a table with a roof built over it and a homemade sign for jam, three euro, and an honesty box, and then the upcycled jars arranged in rows. Mark parked, and we wandered in through a door-sized gap in the fence. Mother Irene was standing on the gravel path, and Sister Anne-Marie was hurrying away. I glimpsed her round face for a second as the door of a shed swung shut. Mother Irene did not appear happy to greet us, nor eager to show us around. She stomped off, and we followed. 
There were vegetable patches and chicken coops. There was a stream bisecting the property and a wide plain of marshy land that probably flooded in winter. There was a large flat area of poured concrete like a foundation or a landing pad. Mother Irene permitted us to look inside the chapel. It was drafty and dim and felt like a sacred space that smelled like plain cooking, yeast and boiled potatoes. Up on the mezzanine I noticed a tousled duvet. I didn't need to ask about light, heat, toilets. We lingered outside on the gravel. I knew we would not bid. I felt sorry for the nuns, even though I suspected they felt sorry for us. I asked about the songbirds, just to be talking. Mother Irene said she used to put up feeders, but didn't bother anymore. While Mark was doing an elaborate three-point turn in the driveway, I stood in front of the roofed table and tried to choose between jams. He stuck his hand out the window with the coins we kept on the dashboard for shopping trolleys. Blackberry or raspberry, I said. Do we even eat jam, he said. No, I said. No, we don't eat jam, but that isn't the point. We stopped at a lake on the drive home and walked the dogs. The path had mounds of horse shit at intervals and we shouted at the dogs not to eat it. The little dog's modus operandi in such situations is to swallow the mouthful of shit as quickly as possible, whereas the big dog always drops it and looks sheepish. Low branches overhung the water, and around the shoreline there was a ring of floating twigs, dense as a raft but restlessly twitching. A fish jumped, a wood pigeon ascended. Up in the patchy canopy I spotted a few clumps of old rowan berries, like clotted blood. Five. Then it was winter. The jellyfish had largely disappeared. They still washed up during storms, mixed up in the washing machine of the Atlantic, flung onto the beaches amongst the kelp and waterlogged undergrowths and plastic bottles and mauled seal cubs. The moon jellyfish had lost their tentacles. The by-the-wind sailors had lost their sails. The Japanese men of war had deflated. They stuck to the stones like bubblegum. In winter, we made an unplanned stop at a for-sale sign driving home from a road trip one Sunday evening. There was a short, steep driveway at a hairpin in the road. The property was an old schoolhouse with a plaque on the gable. There was a palm tree in the front garden, an upturned tin bath at the back. The steps up to the door were child-sized. I clawed through brambles to cut my palms against the glass. Inside, it looked as if somebody had been using it as a carpentry workshop. Tools hung from nails, sawdust coated the floorboards. Walls were partial, a screen here, a curtain there. I looked it up on the estate agent's website on the drive home. It had been stamped under offer. I said I would phone on Monday, but I didn't. The schoolhouse was somebody else's property dream. Somebody else was scrambling to come up with the deposit, to schedule an engineer, hoping nobody else would bid. On a bleak Tuesday afternoon, at the end of a long, snaking boreen, we viewed a house that was incredibly ugly. So ugly that I felt sorry for it, felt an obligation to want it, because nobody else would. The white paint had peeled and greyed. The front was hilariously asymmetrical. The upstairs windows were significantly bigger than the downstairs windows, and the front door was slightly off to the left, with a pointless expanse of grey-white plaster left behind on the right. The roof was flat making the whole thing look decapitated. The description on Daft boasted a large selection of mature trees, 
but they were barren when we visited, the lawn a tract of mud. Indoors, it was eerily similar to the house on the island. The same wood-panelled hall, the same curtains, the same smell, even the same picture of the sacred heart of Jesus. We did not bid on the ugly house. It was too depressing, though we were briefly tempted by the long driveway. The house we rent is set back from a quiet road by a long driveway, and this is the feature that means most to us. There are no traffic noises, no neighbours come calling. When my mum stays the night, she always says it feels as if time has stopped. Six. Then it was summer again. The last property we viewed glowed with promise from the moment we found it on Daft. The immediate area is very beautiful, according to the description. A valley of deciduous forestry, close to a harbour. It did not exist on Google Street View. Yes, I said. The driveway was a mountainside. Yes, I said. The house, a sophisticated log cabin, appeared spacious, even though it was small. There were lots of windows and a big central room with bookshelves and a log stove. The person who lived there seemed to own exactly the same kind of stuff as us. There were oriental rugs, a wicker basket, a painted dresser. The garden was neat and sloping. There were stepping slabs set into the lawn and dry stone walls around the flower beds. There was a rockery with lavender, verbena, mint. There were fruit trees, a bird bath. It looks like we already live there, I said to Mark. The asking price was 95k, which seemed too good to be true. The woman I spoke to at the estate agency said that the owner would like to be there during the viewings. There had been quite a bit of interest, she told me. Why does the owner want to be there? I said to Mark as soon as I hung up. Do you think he's going to be auditioning us? Our viewing was scheduled for late on a Friday afternoon, but we set off early so that Mark could go fishing for a couple of hours. The sea was unusually calm. The jellyfish had not shown up yet. He wanted to catch a thornback ray. It is unlikely, he said. If you catch a ray, then maybe I'll buy a house, I said. It was unlikely. I brought the dogs on a long meandering walk and then sat on a pebbly beach and ate the foil-wrapped sardine sandwich I'd packed for myself and fed the dogs the smaller sardine sandwiches I'd packed for them. There was no one around. The day was windless, the sea exceptionally calm. It was indeed a very beautiful place. Mark came back and ate his sandwich. He had holes in the knees of his trousers and smelled like defrosted mackerel, but maybe this was a good thing. Maybe the owner of the cabin in the woods would feel like we were the sort of people who were in need of a clean start. We made a sharp right, and the road began to narrow and climb. Mark had to reverse and crunch the van into the ditch to allow a big white four-wheel drive with an English registration plate to pass. Motherfucking holiday homers, I said, presuming they had just viewed our cabin. By the time we had found it and parked, the estate agent, I'll call her Laura, was waiting for us at the gate. We met the owner, I'll call him Robert, at the door. He wasn't wearing any shoes. Do you want us to take our shoes off? I asked, but he said there was no need. Inside the cabin there were fly screens and photographs of significant llamas in simple frames. It was warm. We've never lived in a warm house before, I said, hoping he would feel sorry for us. My aunt is a Buddhist, I said, hoping to establish some kind of kinship, but... He did not know her. 
I sang off the names of every species of bird on his feeder, chaffinch, greenfinch, great tit, sparrow. I expressed desire for his Victoria plums. But Robert remained poker-faced throughout. He didn't ask us a single question. When we got home that evening, I found that I had picked up a tick at some point of my meandering morning walk. It had somehow managed to journey all the way up my long sleeve and plant itself into the soft flesh of my bicep. I stayed up late trying to tweezer it free, to manipulate the head out with the pointy end of an earring, making a bloody hole in my arm in the process. Mark knocked on the bathroom door. I hope you're not butchering yourself in there, he said, but I knew I would not be able to sleep until I was rid of it. In the morning, I finally remembered to ask him whether or not he had caught a thornback ray. I did, he said, and so we bid on the Buddhist cabin in the woods. My sister, who knows how to play the property game, gave me a few phrases to deploy. I am a cash buyer, I told Laura. I am not stuck in any chains. Laura said she was expecting other offers and would get back to us on Monday. All weekend, I mentally organised my belongings in the Buddhist cabin, my writing desk, my books, my rocking chair, my dog beds. I felt weirdly confident that it would soon be ours because it was perfect and possibly destiny. On Monday, Laura phoned to say that we had been outbid. We bid again but dropped out at 103k. We did not want to have to ask our loved ones for money. We did not want to have no money to live on in the house that we had bought. I was disappointed in Robert. Why did he insist on meeting everybody, I asked Mark, if he only cared about the money anyway? But then I suppose it was arrogant of me to presume I would win in any audition. I sent a snarky email. Hi, Laura. That's me out, I'm afraid. How disappointing. I really hope it doesn't become a holiday home. That would be heartbreaking. Huge thanks again, and please do pass on our good wishes to Robert. It was lovely to meet him, and we wish him all the best in this new chapter of his life. Take care, Sarah. She replied, Hi Sarah, thanks for your interest and sincerity. I hope you find a very special place. Regards, Laura. 7. A year after we watched the series of grand designs about the self-build experiment in Oxfordshire, we stumbled upon a repeat of the first episode that we had originally missed. It focused on two different projects and three friends. Lynn was a single retiree, who wanted to live next door to her friends, Terry and Alwyn, a married couple. The agreement was that Terry would lend Lynn, who was enthusiastic but inexperienced, a hand with her build. And then they would all three live alongside one another in dazzling houses and blissful harmony. But soon Terry was frazzled and debilitated from the exertions of his own project, and Lynn was demanding more help than he was willing to give. They all fell out and spent a large chunk of the episode not speaking. Lynn was forced to hire strangers. Many things went wrong. There were burst pipes and cracked concrete floors. There were roof beams that slipped. There was a whole side of the building that had to be knocked down and put up again. There was crying. There was more crying. At the end, both the houses were completed just in time for Kevin MacLeod and his camera crew to come back. They looked, as usual, like contemporary art galleries. Lynn was filmed leading Kevin through her cavernous house. She was five foot one, adrift, lightly traumatised by the ordeal of the build. She stood on a bamboo balcony beneath two magnificent skylights and pointed out the treetops. What will she do all day long now, I wondered, alone in her perfect house? By then it was autumn again. 
We still had not found that very special place and we couldn't afford it anymore anyway. My savings had shrunk and property prices were shooting up. We no longer scheduled viewings. We no longer made phone calls to estate agencies. We no longer checked daft. New infatuations had crept in. I had bought a sewing machine and a monocular for spotting whales. And the Japanese men of war were returning. There seemed to be more of them than ever before. They drifted around the coast, haphazardly encountering nutrition, oblong pockets of empty space. There was no way of telling whether or not they were even alive. You're listening to the Dublin Review podcast and that was Sarah Baum reading her essay The Viewings, which appears in number 88, the autumn 2022 issue of the magazine. Sarah, thanks for reading for us. Uh, So atmospheric. I'm not sure if listeners can hear it, but there's an Atlantic gale blowing behind you. You are in West Cork and I'm in a recording studio in Dublin. Um, At the start of this essay, you say that you're happy where you live. Uh, that you don't want to move, but you've become infatuated with the idea of owning property. And I wondered there, listening to you read it, whether, you know, we know that we're property obsessed, particularly in Ireland. But also, is there an element of it being an online activity, you know, where we kind of end up going down these rabbit holes? Is, is there was that part of your experience or did you actually want a house? No, I mean, I really do think I would like a house. And that's kind of impulses become stronger in me the older I've gotten. Um, You know, for years I wasn't interested in most other aspects. My life is pretty unconventional. So I'm loath to admit it, but I would love to own (laughs) a place just because it's security. I mean, I have nothing against the rental market. I just think it's broken in Ireland, you know. Like in theory, if I could sign a very long lease and feel that I had security of tenure, then I wouldn't mind renting. But with the way things are, I guess when you're renting, you just always have this shadow of fear hovering over you that that you'll be told to move on. And so you just don't settle in a place in the way that you would. Like we have a nice patch of land around us here. And if I owned it, perhaps I would make more of an effort with planting shrubs or vegetables or, um, but you know, you never do because you think, you know, that's that's maybe futile work if um, if it's if it's just a rental property. And even the same with painting, like we did actually eventually paint during the pandemic <laughs> due to a, a due to the we just had the time, I guess. But um, but in general, there's this feeling that you're always living in a slightly provisional way. And I guess the older you get, you think, you know, and you kind of um, you pass up opportunities to go other places for long periods of time because there's the dilemma about renting you know do I continue to rent at home and you know hoping that it will be you know to have the assurance that it will still be there when you get back or um so it does it so it does you know I, I do definitely feel at this stage I would like to put down roots but I'm really not you know I'm not that I'm not someone who's into like um property or interior design or any of those things in a way I'd kind of like that that was what appealed to us so much about this this cabin it felt like somewhere we already lived and not a project that we would have to endeavour upon. I don't think either of us are looking for a project, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the cabin, I was very disappointed in Robert, I have to say, because it did seem that, yeah, this was perfect, too perfect. Do you know, did the person in the big white 4 by 4 were they the people who bought it or what do you think now? 
No, I've no idea, to be honest. And it's not close to where we live, really. Like, it's a couple of hours away. So, you know, we have never had any cause to go past it and to sort of peer in and <laughs> see who looks like they buy it. Yeah, and that was the thing, you know, it may have been sold to a couple like ourselves who just had a bit more um, wiggle room on the price. Um, so, so I just don't know. But, you know, I guess because I was disappointed and bitter, it became this sort of conspiracy against me in my head. <laughs> Yeah, and I love the passive-aggressive email that you sent. Yeah, and I, you could tell from the response that um, that the agent probably sympathised with me and came up against, came across people like me a lot of the time, but you know, they're just doing their job and their job is to get the best price for the owner. Mm. So, um, so yeah, so I didn't, like I say, all names were changed. I, in the process of um, editing this essay, I mean, a lot got cut because we felt that there were in fact a lot of things that would identify and obviously we didn't want to identify the people. Um, so a lot of kind of, um, I guess, more cutting little little <laughs> observations um, were removed, um, which is only fair. But um, but yeah, but uh, and then other parts got, um, got left in because with the nuns, for example, that's a very well-documented case mm. um, and it's kind of rolled on over the years. Like this Irene Gibson has been in the news for various reasons since... Um, and again, like I didn't, I really didn't, uh, I, I felt a lot of sympathy for the nuns, even though I'm sure they wouldn't have wanted me to, to feel sympathy for them. Um, it, it was such a difficult situation for them and they had put down roots in this place and done a lot of work on this piece of land um, and were being forced to give it up. So there's kind of, there's quite a lot of like little tragedies <laughs> circling around inside the essay, I think. Um, but it's true that, you know, when you're writing from real life, you do have to be mindful of real people in the essay that you're writing. Um, I read an interview with you when Seven Steeples came out earlier this year, um, where you said that everything you write is based on the facts of your own life. So in writing nonfiction memoir, which is what this is really, um, do you take poetic license in that way when you're writing? You know, do you... Yeah, yeah. Do you take poetic license? Like, is it creative nonfiction in that way? In the first draft, it was definitely creative nonfiction, and by the final draft, it was no longer creative nonfiction, um, uh, because I, I suppose, it made me um, working on the edits with Brendan made me realize how much I was prone to exaggeration. Um, and I guess I would sub in details that I didn't exactly remember or the difficulty was in, we went to see quite a few places and I looked at a lot of places online. And when I sat down to write the essay, years had passed. So really my memories were fuzzy and what I remembered from one place could have actually been from another place. Or So, you know, what ended up going in the essay was what I could actually remember or verify in some form. I'd made some notes at the time um, and I'd taken some pictures and I'd saved some ads, but um, but a lot more was, like I say, fuzzy. And so and so the essay shrunk quite a bit um, in the process of <laughs> taking those things out. Um, and after that, that when I wrote a couple of short stories, I think I felt kind of, um, I felt sort of, the, I felt oppressed by the the obligation to tell the truth when you're when you're writing something that is going to be called an essay published as an essay um then uh then I guess I I felt that you know I I, I was obliged for it to be true and I kind of missed the embellishment and um after I'd finished it and submitted it I I went away and made things up <laughs> and enjoyed making things up for a while instead I think probably I'm better suited to fiction because um 
even though I don't have a great imagination, like I, I, I always stay close to the facts of my own life, but I like to, um, I like to blur them a lot, I suppose. I like to mess with them. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting you say there that the houses kind of merged into each other. I do think that there is a particular type of house. I mean, particularly when you're looking at old houses that are within your budget and usually they have been the home of an elderly person, uh, very often an old bachelor. And in this, there's two um, houses where the wood panelling is the same and there's the picture of the Sacred Heart. And even online, there are a lot of galleries of these old houses where people have gone in and taken photographs of, you know, the mildewed curtains and they're they're almost identical. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was absolutely our price bracket. And we realised that and that picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, it was, we met it more times than, than the two times that were mentioned. Um, it was, just happened to be that those two houses were almost exactly the same. Um, uh, yeah, no, all of all of the houses sort of, they were like your granny's house. And um, to be fair, none of my grandparents were Irish, so, <laughs> um, or only one was Irish and he didn't have a house that I went to visit. But so I didn't, but I knew these houses from my grandparents, the, the, the grandpa- grandparents of my friend's houses when I was a kid kind of thing, you know, um, they felt very familiar to me. Um, and yet they were no longer in good condition. You know, they were they no longer had a fire lighting or had that kind of warmth. Instead, there was the mildew and the mold on the walls and bits of the roof coming down, the old wood paneling full of woodworm. Um, so I, yeah, I felt like that was absolutely our, our price bracket. But I have a lot of affection for those houses as well. I've never, well, you know, I know that it would be the sensible thing to do, but I've never really felt any desire to build a place from scratch um perhaps because mark and i aren't interested enough in sort of renovation projects then no more do we want to have to plan a house um and and obviously couldn't afford it anyway but i i really like the idea of an old house that has history in it um that has some kind of a feeling of being lived in and has i don't know like just character um so i love those old farmhouses or cottages or something like that um even though in reality you know they're they're more problematic than starting with something um starting starting from scratch really um but you can't you can't buy that kind of that kind of history in a place yeah yeah I was really struck by that and I wonder is it you know is what appeals to you about these old houses is because you're a writer because they certainly appeal to the writer in me when I read particularly the um house on the island you know where you'd looked at it on google earth or google maps or whatever that thing is but then when you get out there I mean I felt like I knew the man who lived there from his bottle of whiskey and it just broke my heart that the bedclothes nobody had bothered like you know to give him the dignity of making his bed after he died and the crutches against the wall and you know is is there a sense that you want a story when you go in there that you want to be able to you know this imagined life well that was the first place that we went to and as soon as we got in I kind of felt like god if we never buy a house I'll definitely write an essay about this someday (laughs) and none of them were it was that frame of of the man who had lived there and then the traces left behind you know generally and definitely nowadays like I think a lot has changed in the last couple of years but it felt like no one had put any effort at all into clearing the pace out. Like all of his stuff was still there. No one had picked up like family photographs even. Um, and the estate agents had, you know, made no effort to make it look like a show home. It was just, it felt absolutely like the owner had left it. Um, and I loved that. But then at the same time, it didn't feel, it didn't feel like somewhere that it felt like you would have been imposing almost to move in. Um, 
And I don't know, like in retrospect, we should have bought that because we had no idea what was going to happen with the property market. But <laughs> That's what I late. thought when I read it. I thought, <laughs> this is the house they should buy. It's the first one. But whoever does with yeah, the first one, because you don't know what else is coming up. Yeah. See, our problem even then, and I didn't, because I'm just not sensible at all about these things, was that the only places we could have afforded were in a very poor state and we had no money on top of it to fix them up, you know. So really, it was always unrealistic dream. Um, it was, you know, you'd, you'd buy somewhere, but it would be just a total problem and probably decay into the ground because, you know, you'd never make more money to fix it up. Like I say, it was always kind of a, it was always unrealistic. Mm. Um, and so what I, but I had these, I had, I had this great story at the end of it. <laughs> Yeah, you say it's unrealistic and I had a sense there when you were reading it, although it wasn't that strong the couple of times that I've read this story, that Mark is kind of entertaining you. It seems very much like this is your your pursuit and he's going off fishing and he'll drive you places and all of this. And it, yeah, definitely when you were reading it, I got a sense of he knows you so well that he knows this will peter out, that there'll be a new infatuation and it'll be all grand. Yeah, no, I think true. Absolutely true. He... um he, you know, I, I, I do think he would like to own a house the same as I would, um, but he probably has a keener sense of what is realistic and what is not realistic. Um, so, yeah, he was <laughs> entertaining me. I mean, you know, we were we were serious at the time because we thought that something, you know, had we been able to buy the cabin at its asking price, it, it wouldn't have been unrealistic. We would have been living in it. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it wasn't to be. So mm. And that cabin is... You, you know, the cabin is up on a mountainside with a steep climb going up to it. The house where the old man has died is out on an island. And you talk about the house that you're renting as um, not having that thing that Irish people really want, road frontage, which to you is you don't want people even to be able to find where you live. And is that part of writing and, you know, wanting to be isolated, wanting to... Um, is it important for your process as a writer to be secluded in that way? Uh, for me, yeah, definitely. It's psychological distance, but also actual distance, I suppose. Um, we lived for the first five years that after we moved from Dublin. I mean, obviously, everywhere I lived in Dublin was in the city, more or less, or in, in a housing estate. Um, and then when we first moved down to Cork, we lived in a village. Like, this is well known that we lived in Whitegate, which is in East Cork, because I wrote about it in my first novel, and I wrote about the oil refinery and the power station. But anyway, that was like a very small village, and we lived right on the main street next to a shop. And even though it was a rural village, um, it was the busiest shop. Like, there were a lot of houses around. We didn't, we, we never dreamed that the shop could be so busy. It was like a Euro spire. It's still there. Um, but I think that kind of <laughs> that damaged us. We were like, um, uh, it was just, it, it was not a lot of privacy at all. Um, and even just getting, putting the dog, getting a, getting a parking space on the main street was annoying, you know. Um, so I think that kind of poisoned both of us against living, living on a road or living with neighbours on either side of us. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, it's a real privilege. It's something that you know, I think about a lot now because I'm one of these people who's kind of catastrophic about the end of the world. You know, I think the world is ending and I think the kind of space that we have to live now is, you know, it's going to it's going to change drastically because 
there are going to be people in other parts of the planet that aren't able to live where they live anymore and so our part of the planet is going to become really crowded and so I'm I think in everything I write I'm sort of keenly aware of that and keenly grateful for the space that we have here and the proximity to nature and the nature that's still alive um, and that's something that keeps on coming up the kind of uh, <laughs> the space around where I live and I guess the the importance of having a boat hole um, and the slight meanness I suppose of feeling like you're entitled to it and wanting to hang on to it um, I think the future is going to be really different yeah um, there's a cautionary tale in here as well in the form of grand designs that you seem you sit down seemingly over the winter months and you watch this and you kind of um not that you disapprove of it. Well, I suppose you kind of do disapprove of it. But what really hit me about it was that there's a correlation between yourself and Mark going off looking at these houses. But at the same time, watching this sort of, you know, TV property porn type programme where the people who have aspirations for the perfect place to live, you know, their characters in the essay, James and Shannon and Lynn and Alwyn and Terry, their lives fall apart. Yeah, I mean, that was, I just thought it was so interesting from the point of view of, and, and I mean, nearly all of the property programs tell the same story. People who have this like dream of this perfect, perfect house, this perfect space. And at the end, it's generally, and you know, now they're explicitly happy and they love it. And even though it's gone way over budget, which practically always does, um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't change things for the world. But and I, that was what occasionally, and that was one really good example. It doesn't necessarily go right at the end of the program you kind of see that the veil has has fallen and um, and they're actually not that happy that, um, I mean, this Lynn who had fallen out with her friends, you know, and she had all of this space, but she was alone. And I mean, maybe that's, you know, maybe, I'm sure she's very happy now. I'm sure she's fine. But um, I guess, yeah, the, the, the message that I was getting from that was that, you know, it's not going to, you don't need this to make you happy, I suppose, um, that in a way, the possibility of this kind of future home. I, I can't remember the, I can't remember where I got this from. It was a book that I read, maybe it was a psychology book or something, but I remember um, this person being described and this person had um, had this house in France, now a holiday home in fact, um, but in their head, this was an English or Irish person, they had this house in France and they were constantly thinking about the house of France, furnishing it, you know, planting things in the garden and uh, essentially it didn't exist. It was just a house in France in their head where they would go to as a way of escaping from reality, you know. It was like their happy place or their safe place. They didn't actually have a second home, a house in France. Um, and I think in a way that's for me is like the home, the house that I own um, somewhere on the west coast of Ireland. Um, if I actually had it, perhaps I'd be disappointed, you know, perhaps a little part of me would die. For the time, you know, as long as I don't have it, I still have the kind of possibility of it. I can still take things out and put things in and, you know, give it different windows and plant new shrubs in the garden. And none of it is, none of it is fixed down. But in a way, the sort of possibility of it in the future keeps you going um, in a way that actually having everything in its right place um, doesn't, you know. And, and for me, looking at the, the two examples in the Grand Design program, it was like everything isn't just going to be magically perfect when you, when you have your, your art gallery house. You know, you're still going to have to tidy the damn thing. <laughs> um, you know, you're still going to have plumbing issues. You're going to have to pay for them yourself because you don't have a landlord anymore. Um, so, so yeah, so I guess it was, it was put up as a kind of a juxtaposition with our own experience. 
Yeah, and you're definitely in a better position than poor James, who ends up in his giant barn with his chickens and no running water, hoping that Shannon will come back. Yeah, I'm probably in debt as well, which, you know, I'm grateful for not being in debt, even if I can't afford things. Well, thank you for joining us on the Dublin Review podcast, Sarah. Really enjoyed our conversation today. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can read more essays from the Dublin Review in our anthology, Show Your Work, which contains 14 years of essays from the magazine. Contributors include Colm Tobin, Anne Enright, Kevin Barry, Dirini Griefa, Sally Rooney, Patrick Frayne and many more. Show Your Work is available at thedublinreview.com. You've been listening to the Dublin Review podcast presented by Angela Flannery and produced in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. The Dublin Review is supported by the Arts Council of Ireland and is published quarterly. For more information or to subscribe, go to thedublinreview.com. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at the Dublin Review.